Welcome to the River City Church podcast and a message by our lead pastor, Jason Powers. Our prayer is that this message would inspire and encourage you, build your faith, and point you to the life-changing love of Jesus. May you enjoy the goodness of God as you follow him today. We begin as we do every day. We're gathered for the good news, the gospel. The gospel says good news, and the good news is that we're loved. The good news is there's a God who sees us and knows us. The good news is that God, the eternal creator of all things, has come to get us. And that's good news because left to our own, on our own, we struggle, right? We want to get to God, but we're confronted with the reality that we can't. And so as we gather every Sunday, as we gather together, we make that at the beginning, a declaration, a statement of the gospel. And for us, it's this. This is our confession. But before we begin, we make sure that we get this in, right? Because we can't skip past the first part, right? We can't skip past the brokenness. Because if you don't understand the bad news, you really can't grasp the good news, right? So we begin, and the only way this works is grace. The only way this works is if what Jesus said is true. He loves us and he forgives us. What his friend John said is true. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive and purify us from all of our sins. So we begin each time with hope, with joy, and that joy for us looks like confession. Will you join me for a moment and just open your heart to the Lord and confess, I need you. Lord, I'm broken, I need you. Let's do that together. Jesus, I pray that we would wrestle with the audacity of grace, this idea that one who is bigger than us and stronger than us and over us in every single way does not look at our failures and weaknesses with anger or with judgment, but rather with grace. So may we as your church not cheapen grace by minimizing the impact of our brokenness on the world, but also by not meditating just on brokenness, but by letting our brokenness lead us to you. So I pray today that we would encounter you and your radical, great, amazing, never-ending, overflowing love for us. And as we encounter your love, may we be purified. May our hearts be made holy, set apart for you. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. So our confession is that we are badly broken. Yes, you are. Grace and peace to you. Most Scholars and historians pin the birth of Jesus as somewhere between 3 and 6 B.C., which is weird because if it's before Christ, how can he be born before Christ? But anyway, I'm not going to get into that. Which means that somewhere around the year 30 A.D., Jesus was crucified and he was resurrected. And that set in motion a chain of events that really leads to the present day. A couple of the big things Jesus left and he told his disciples in the upper room, he says, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and when it comes, you'll be my witnesses. Now here's the deal. When Jesus left, the church was basically a renewal movement within Judaism. It was entirely Jewish. All the first disciples were Jewish men and women. The expansion was Jewish. And so what happened was Jesus said, you'll receive my power and you'll learn. And the church grow and it blossomed and it bloomed. And we had these really three or four great years. And in AD 34, as pressure from without started kind of pressing on the Jewish people in Jerusalem, the Jews 
anxious to stomp out this new movement, they created the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. You can read all about him in Acts chapter 7. That was probably in A.D. 34 or 35. The emperor on the throne in Rome was Caligula. Is that right? Yes, it was. It was Caligula. So from outside, pressure on the Jewish people in, in Israel begins to mount. It begins to mount. They begin to get, feel pressure. The Jewish people in Israel, they're ready for their country back. They're ready to have their own heritage, their own people, their own place. They're ready for the return of the kingdom that God promised to King David, where David, a son of David, would be on the throne forever. And the Christians, seeing that Stephen is martyred and murdered and killed, they sense danger. So all throughout Jerusalem, Christians begin to scatter, just like Jesus would say. It's not how they would choose to scatter, but it's how they went. And so the continues to be pressure, pressure in Rome on the Jewish people, pressure on the Christians. There begins to be this upheaval. See, the problem for the Christian, the problem with the Christians, according to the Rome, the Romans, Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in the God, the emperor God. They didn't believe in the whole pandemic. So they considered them atheists because the Christians insisted on this declaration. There is one God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so they go, and there's this pressure, and it's mounting, and it's mounting, and it's mounting. And when we, by the time we get to A.D. 46, there's a new emperor in Rome. His name is Claudius, the granduncle of Nero, who would go on to just be terrible. But Claudius is on the throne in A.D. 46. This diaspora, they call it the diaspora, the dispersion of Jewish Christians throughout the whole world. They're going to Rome, they're going to Greece, they're going to Africa, they're going to Turkey. And in AD 46, the half-brother of Jesus, who we call James, writes a letter to the church. Now the church at the time, it started with great, great unity. It started with great promise, with great hope. They're gathered, we read in Acts 2 and Acts 4, how they were all together and everyone kept having the same heart and the same mind. But by the time we get to AD 46, the church had begun to fracture. The church had begun to split because of pressures from without. Because Rome, the Roman people kept pressing on, pressing on the Jewish people. And as the Jewish people got pressed, they began to press on the Christians. And so the Christians get scattered and they get sent out. And all the while, everybody's waiting for something. The Jewish people are waiting for the return of the throne, for the political removal of Rome from the throne in, well, Rome. The Christians are waiting for this kingdom that Jesus promised, where every sad thing would come untrue, where God himself would rule over his people. And so they're waiting, and they're waiting, and as time goes on. Now, in AD 46, we're 15, 16, 17 years beyond the death of Christ, and things seem to be going from bad to worse. Rome isn't getting smaller. They're not losing battles. They're winning battles. They're tightening down. The emperors are getting more and more bloodthirsty, more and more cruel, more and more unhinged and everybody is waiting and the whole thing seems to be coming undone sound familiar have you ever heard of a place where the social fabric seems to be stretched have you ever heard of a place where to be a christian seems to be coming with increasing pressure and you begin to wonder where do we fit how do we go what is our place what do we do here have you ever felt like things in this moment are just too bad God can't be in the middle of this. Have you ever felt like the waiting is never gonna end? I'm tired of waiting. And so now it's time to take action. 
in Jesus' name, of course. But we're going to go and we're going to stand and we're going to fight and we're going to take back and we're going to rally and we're going to do. Have you ever just been tired of waiting? Have you ever wondered if they can be trusted? Who They, the other guys, the other people. Have you ever wondered if really the people that are closest to me, the people that are, we're having this conversation, can we trust them? Have you ever just felt like this whole faith thing is just too hard? I remember when I was a youth pastor, I had a young man that we were hanging out and talking with, and, and he came from a troubled place. It was hard, and he just like, he had some behavioral issues, and I'll never forget, we were at a pizza party at a, at a kid's house, and he came up to me afterwards. His name was Stephen, and he came up after me, and he says, Jason, this being a Christian thing is just too hard. I just can't do it. I just can't be good. I never saw him again. He left that afternoon. Have you ever felt like that? Like it's just too hard? There's just too much? Well, the good news is there's something of the cultural context in which James, the book of James was written that is relevant for us today. It's not entirely dissimilar. So over the next several weeks, as we look in James, it's important to keep that in mind. James was writing to a group. Listen, he writes this. James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word servant, the Greek word is doulos, and it means like a bondservant, which is much more like a slave. So this is James. James was the half-brother of Jesus, okay? They had different fathers. James's father was a guy called Joseph. Jesus's father was a guy called Yahweh. And James, all through James's life, James didn't believe in Jesus. There's all kinds of stories you can go into the Gospels and you can read. They thought he was mad. They thought Jesus was crazy. They didn't believe him. And then the resurrection happened. And, and resurrection changes everything. So James not only becomes a believer, but becomes a leader in the church. And James didn't say, hey, everybody, I'm James, Jesus's brother. He didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm the younger brother of Jesus and I'm known better, so here's my, uh, here's my credibility. He called himself a slave. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Not big brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings in the diaspora. So now at this time, by the time that this letter goes out, the church, the capital C church, is still almost exclusively Jewish. Now there's starting to be inroads, there's starting to be, um, you know, some some movement happening, but for the most part, James is talking to a group of Jewish people, but he's talking to them about how to follow Jesus in the midst of this, in the midst of the cultural tensions, in the midst of the problems. What does it look like to be a Jesus follower? Verse four, Commit it, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So I've started teaching out of the ESV. Some of you wonder, like, why did Jason start reading a different Bible? Um, It's just a different Bible. I can talk to you about that. But if you have the NIV, yours may say patience, right? It produces patience. Patience is a good, it's a good word. But when I think about patience, what I think about is like sitting in the doctor's office, right? Like not, and not like throwing a fit, not attacking the secretary, right? Being patient is like being able to be in my car uh, at, at a four-way stop while everybody is waving the other person on. I'm like, somebody just go, right? That, that is patience. The ESV, the New Revised Standard, the New American Standard, they use the word steadfastness. Now that word um, implies carrying a great weight for a long time. Bearing up under 
a burden. So what James here says is consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, produces this ability to hold up, produces this ability to hang on when things get really tough and let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it grow and grow and do all of the things that it is created to do. It's like when you take a cup of coffee out from under the Keurig early, right? Like, it's not the same. You got to let it finish, right? You got to let all the stuff in there so all the good stuff gets out so it's the right blend. Let steadfastness have its work, its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, just let that description wash over you for a minute. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Now, James, as a good Jewish boy, as a good Jewish man, he knows that kind of the implication in all of this is this Hebrew idea of shalom, of completeness in the Lord, of being at peace and at rest in the Lord. Excuse me, because we lack nothing, because we know that God has everything in control, that he has provided everything, right? Verse 5, now it seems like James changes course, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all all his ways. So James is writing to a group of people tired of waiting. Tired of of seemingly giving their lives away, tired of being on the bottom, tired of wasting. And James writes to them about this perspective that is rooted and based and founded in the reality that Jesus Christ was not just a man, not just a teacher and a leader, but that Jesus is king. That Jesus is the ruler, the resurrected son and child of God. And so what does he say to this group of people that are burdened? They're overwhelmed, they're tired, they're cranky, they are restless. They're ready to throw off the chains and the yoke of tyranny and they are ready to get their place back. And what does James say to them in verse two? He says, consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kind. Consider it joy when you face trials. So the idea of trials, as you can see, right? He talks about trials and then he goes to the testing of your faith. So Trials is not temptation, right? It's not like, I wonder if I should go do that bad thing. Trials is the, te- the tempting of our faith. And what the testing of our faith means is it calls into mind this question. What do I really believe? And not only what do I believe, but what do I put my hope in? In what am I hoping? Now, here's the question we see, right? You just look at that and it's easy it's here. Just go, oh yeah, I know I put my hope in God. But James knew there's practical implications of that. James knew there's practical implications. If you're hoping in God, it looks like different things, right? So the question we ask is, is your hope real? So here's the question. In what is your hope? What do you hope is going to take care of you? Certainly Jesus. Well, what else? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your income? Is it your inheritance? Is it your health? Is it your strength? What is it? The question is, What, what thing, if it were taken from you, would cripple you? What thing, if taken from you, would cause you to doubt every good 
thing. Because what James says is when we encounter those things, those trials, those things that force us to contend with the reality of our faith, that force us to contend with this thing that I put my hope in, can it really deliver me when things get hard? And anybody can bear up under something for a little bit, but when we, when we have that ongoing, seemingly never-ending, and we start to wonder, is it ever going to stop? Is it ever going to go away? When we feel that burden and that mounting pressure, in what do we hope? Do we hope in our own strength and our own ability to run away? Imagine you're holding a great big giant stone, a great giant ball, right? Like Atlas holding the world up. Do you, is your hope that someday I can get this off? Someday I can throw this away and run? What is it? See, that's a fundamental question for everything that comes that we deal with today for everything that comes after. In what is your hope? And that is a fundamental question that James deals with. To the Jewish believers, to the Christians, to us today, what are we hoping for? But James has actually high hopes for these trials, these things that test us, these burdens that we carry, because he says that the testing of our faith, this burden, this carrying of this burden, what it does is it produces this steadfastness, this ability to stand even when things go terribly wrong, even when things get extremely difficult. And so the question that James is talking about is, would you rather have to be wrapped in bubble wrap, right? Don't ever get hurt, man. If anything ever goes wrong, then you're in trouble, right? And everything, oh, could God would never make anything happen to me. Or are you built and chiseled out of stone and iron? And are you strong enough to endure and withstand everything that comes your way. See, what God wants you to know is not on your own, but through him, you have that. You have the ability to stand and to endure and to withstand anything and everything comes. And the source of that is faith. Listen, if you go over just a couple of pages to the book of First Peter, it's literally the next book. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about the same thing, right? James says the testing of your faith produces perseverance, right? Listen to what Peter says. In this you rejoice, listen, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So now you look at this and you just go, well, Peter says we've been grieved and James says that we should consider it all joy. Well, what's going on? Well, Peter goes on. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. What Peter says is, we discount this. We think, oh, I want the easy, I want flexible, I want good. And what Peter says is, you want faith. Faith is what you want. Because when we have, the picture is, is metals, right? You have gold. He says, your faith is worth more than gold, right? We don't test and try and purify common elements nobody's out there like trying to purify limestone like just get it and go and do what you need with it right like cut your square right? but when you get gold on the other hand it's precious so what you want to do is purify it you heat it up you put the fire on it so all the impurities rise up so you can scoop it away until ultimately what you're left is purity nothing else there but gold and what peter says is your faith is more valuable even than gold and precious things are always tested, tried, heated up, purified. So you go back to James 1, right, in verse 3. 3 and 4 says this. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your tested faith leads to 
perseverance, to steadfastness. And why is that? Because the more you hold up, the longer you hold that rock, the more you believe that you can hold that rock. Especially when you know on my own, I can't hold this rock. Philippians 4 talks about a peace that transcends all understanding. When you find somebody, and you can recognize it from a mile away, when you see somebody in a situation that should be destroying them, that should be crushing them, that should absolutely be ruining their life, and they're just holding up, and they're making it, and they're getting through it, and maybe they're even able to smile, and maybe they're even able to encourage you, that doesn't How do we understand that? How do you make light of that? How do you endure through that? It begins to make you think there's something else there. And the longer that you hold that thing, the longer you stand in it, the longer that you find day by day God providing you what you need in order to stand. Today he provided me hope. Today he provided me courage. Today he provided me strength. Well, as you go a week, a month, a year, two years, however long down that road, you begin to have this testimony that in the midst of all these difficult things, my God has never been found wanting. It doesn't mean everything has been great. It means that he has always come through. This isn't some kind of masochism, okay? What James is not saying is that you should be happy things are terrible. What James is saying is, as believers in Christ, as followers of Jesus, as those of us who have hope in the resurrection of Jesus, our hope isn't just that everything goes good. Our hope is that every sad thing comes untrue. Our hope is this darkness, this weight, it's producing something beautiful and good in us, and I don't want to miss it. I don't want to see it scoop by me and have it for someone else simply because I'm not ready for it. When James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because it produces perseverance, steadfastness, and steadfastness wants to make us mature and complete. I think what James is saying is when you have these moments Rather than spending every moment planning your escape, looking for any way out of the difficult thing. And listen, there's all kinds of ways that we find out of difficult things. Are you listening to me? It's easier in those difficult moments if I've just had a couple glasses of wine. It's easy in those difficult moments if I just go, you know what I need is I need a new outfit for this moment. If I just spend a little bit of money, if I just hang out with that person who's a little bit toxic, if I just indulge in that addiction, if I just work a little bit more, then I won't have to deal with this, I won't have to face it, I won't have to confront it. We're right in the middle of it, but we're not dealing with it. We're not in it. We're trying to escape it. And what happens is we begin to build a life around escape. And folks, listen. Side note, okay, parentheses. Our theology, bad theology often leads us to that. If, you're, if the whole hope of your salvation is that someday this life is going to end and you're going to escape this world to go to another one where everything is different, that's not the plan. The plan is that God is going to redeem this world. Jesus prayed, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When you get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what we find is the new heaven and the new earth coming down to here. It's not about escapism. And the reason we don't have to escape through our addictions, through our, through 
our escape is because we believe that God is here in us. And what James tells us is, if you can endure, what you will be left with is beautiful. It is priceless. It is precious. It is more than gold. But the secret isn't just enduring. Because listen, everybody endures until they're dead. But not everybody endures well, right? Not everybody endures the right way, right? So the question then is, what do we do in those times of squeezing? And listen, are you in a time of squeezing right now? Are you in a time of pressure? And listen, if you just heard me talk about addictions, right? If you just heard me talk about that and your first response is like shame or guilt or hiddenness, what I'm gonna tell you, friend, is that's wrong. Don't, don't buy into that. See, shame looks bad, doesn't it? Shame just says, oh man, that is terrible. I, I, I'm a terrible person here. Jesus doesn't, doesn't do that. Jesus forgives us. We don't have to have shame about our past because Jesus meets us in the present and he looks forward. And Jesus says, I can take today and make forward better. I can move you over. I can move you into and towards my kingdom. There's no reason for shame. There's just a reason to open up and acknowledge I'm in a difficult spot. And listen, that's where, if you're in recovery, right, the 12 steps begin with my life has become unmanageable with this openness and this acknowledgement that I'm stuck, that I'm in trouble. So there's a way to wait. Listen how Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, right? He's talking to his, um, to his disciples, and he's starting this kingdom in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, right? Because we're talking about the kingdom is coming, and there's pressure, and what do we do, and how do we behave? And Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one, also, now this isn't about violence, right? This isn't like assault. This is an insult. Uh, you, you've seen the whole, um, like the Bugs Bunny cartoon with the hand and he slaps him with a glove and he challenges him to a duel over the thing, right? That's what this is. It's like the backhanded slap of insult. If someone insults you, don't insult them back, but just, just wait. Turn the other cheek. They just say, oh, yeah, you, you, know, you, you know, I don't sweat much for a fat guy, right? Well, you should see my feet. They're ugly too, right? What, whatever it is, but not getting drawn into this tit for tat kind of thing. If anybody strikes you on the right cheek, turn the left one also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. He's saying if somebody wants your stuff, right, and they're going to try to take it from you by force, and they're going to take it, just be like, bro, it's just a coat. Have the coat. Have the shirt too. Like, what, what do you want? You want my shoes? I'll give you my shoes, right? And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This is the idea of the Roman soldier conscripting a Jewish citizen to just say, hey, carry my bags for a mile. And at the end of that mile, he can't legally force them to go. But that Jewish man, they're going, you know what? I'm just kind of hitting my stride. Let's keep going. Tell me about the family. Where are you from? What's it, right? It says, if anyone forces you to go one, go two. Now listen, this is scandalous. The Jewish people didn't want to hear this because what they wanted to hear was God's sick of Rome too. And God wants all the Romans gone and they're ruining everything. And instead, Jesus says, listen, you cannot get into this cycle of retaliation. You cannot get into this cycle of meeting force with force. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile right? Give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. He says, you've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You should love the Jewish people around you. You should love the Christians around you and hate your enemy, right? He said, I don't like the people that are different from me. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen, this is it. This is it. Are you ready? So that you may be sons 
of your Father who is in heaven because he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain into the just and the unjust. Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 5 to a group of people, the Jewish people, many of whom them would become the first Christians and the first church, and they're tired of waiting. And Jesus says, while you're waiting, be different. While you're waiting, bear up under it. But don't let the pressure of the stone change who you are. While you wait, you've received this amazing grace. Don't let the pressure of the stone make you a person of ungrace. While you're waiting, continue to be the person that God has called you to be. And if so, he says, if we'll wait like this, Matthew chapter 5, if we'll wait like this, you'll be children of God. My son Jackson, you've seen him sometimes, he plays guitar, right? If you look at pictures of me when I was his age, it's, it's like the same. Jackson's like a chip off the old block, right? In a lot of ways, right? Some better than other ways. Jackson's a radical, remarkable young, young man, right? But he's a chip off the old block. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 and what James is saying in James chapter 1 and what Peter's saying in 1 Peter chapter 1 is as you wait with grace and peace, as you wait without revolt and without, and without retribution, as you wait like Jesus, you become like Jesus to the point where everybody goes, he reminds me of someone. It's Jesus. He reminds me of Jesus. He looks just like Jesus in the way that he forgives and loves and gives and serves. And as you do that, and as you realize that that stone doesn't have the power to crush it. Now listen, real quick, I gotta be real careful. It will absolutely crush and destroy you on your own forever and always, right? Nobody gets out alive. Nobody gets out of the game, right, without being crushed. At the end of the day, death always comes. If you're running from that, good luck. I can't promise you a way not to die, but I can promise you a way. I can show you a way to live forever with the God who loves you and created you and restores you. And God, for whatever his reason, and and he indicates to us, He has told us that it's not always going to be easy, but it's always, always, always going to be redeemed. So wait well. Wait with grace. Wait with peace. Because if in those moments of waiting, you've waited for a long time for your spouse, for your neighbor, for your sister or your parents or your friend, or that situation, you've waited a long time, and you're just tired of waiting. When we begin to respond to our waiting with force, with, with violence, I don't just mean physical violence, I can mean emotional violence, right? There can be all kinds of things. Where we begin to take, where we begin to seize what we want and go after and say, I will take that. Well, what we take, we can no longer receive. And so when we move from a position of receiving from God, his goodness, to a position of taking what we want. Well, number one, we may end up with things that we're not supposed to have, which aren't good for us. And then we're holding on to these things and we just go, well, why is this thing hurting me? Because it was never created for you. You weren't supposed to have that. As long as we insist on a worldview and a perspective of taking and hoarding and and getting and, and growing, then we'll miss it. But when we trust that God is good, to give us everything, then we can wait well. The problem is, that's ridiculous. The problem is waiting like that doesn't work. And the reason we say that is because we don't actually believe that God is giving us the best, right? There was a guy in the 
mid-1800s. His name was Charles Blondin, Blondin the Great. And Blondin's gag was he was a tightrope walker. He was one of the first ones to walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And so great crowds would gather to watch Blondin the Great as he would push this, he would walk across, he'd have all these bars and all stuff, and walk, and everybody would be so happy. And one day Charles Blondin stands at the edge of Niagara Falls and goes, how many of you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across the, across the tightrope? And it's like, oh, go. And so he pushes this wheelchair, this uh, wheelbarrow across, and then he comes back, and everybody's like, Blondin, Blondin. And he goes, how many of you now believe that I can push a person across Niagara Falls in this wheelbarrow? And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, he's going to do it. And everybody's like, Blondin, Blondin. And he goes, who's going to volunteer to push? Oh. I'm going to let Walter handle that one. I'm going to let Walter go across the thing, right? There's a difference between I want to see you try and I believe that you can. And the difference is where do you put yourself? Safely on the sidelines or in it? Because if we believe that God is good and we believe that God loves us and we believe that God has provided for us, then we can wait in trials because we know just the story hasn't ended yet. So what that tells us is that the very best things in life, what James is telling us is the best things come to those who wait for God to give them. The very best things come to us from the hand of God, our Father. Do you want peace? You have a choice. You can go out there and try to take it by force, which is really the definition of unpeace. What about provision? You can go out there and try to take it, and you can sacrifice your whole life trying to get a little bit more and a little bit more, be a little bit more, or you can wait for God to provide it. And I'm not talking about sitting on home. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying you need to sit home on your couch, right? I'm not, I'm not saying you just need to sit and wait for the check. What I'm saying is you walk by faith. You pursue it by faith. You get out and you walk in the steps that he has, he's called you to walk. Right, The book right before James is called Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a definition of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, 1 says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty, the conviction of things not seen. It says, I haven't seen God, but I believe that God will be faithful to me, so I will continue to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, be extra generous, love, give, I won't eye for eye, I will continue to love and serve and give because I believe that when I do, when I hold to the teaching and the life of Jesus, when I bear up in faith, when I believe, I feel like I'm about to die, but God said he was going to come through, so I'm just going to hold on a little bit longer. We find at the end that God comes through for his. I'm not talking about pretending that bad is good. I'm not pretending that that diagnosis, that situation, that thing you're in, I'm not pretending that you have to walk around and go, no, no, this is great. I'm really happy for this. I'm talking about walking through your life with a conviction that God is not done and the story ends with goodness. And what I'm saying is you cannot believe that until you have walked that. You can hear about it. You can get started on the way, you can get going, but you cannot believe it, stand on it, go to the cross for it until you have seen it, until you have experienced it. What we want is fullness and completion. What we want is shalom. What we want is that peace that comes from knowing that God has all of it and all of me well in hand and well under control. And what Jesus said and what James said is then when you get in the situations that produce that, celebrate. 
talk about it and go, this is awful. I hate this with all every fiber of my being. And yet, I believe that God is in this. And I believe that God will redeem this. And I believe that God will make this good. And again, let me just tell you, on the surface of it, it sounds ridiculous. Not only is there no way that it'll work, but I will look like an absolute crazy person. You will, apart from the power of God, apart from the ability to see and know what he's doing, to know where he's going and what he's calling you. Christianity, the very essence of Christianity is this conviction, this belief that things aren't what they seem. The heart of Christianity is this conviction that there's more than what meets the eye. There is a kingdom where God is on the throne right now, right here in this place. But we have to learn how to see it that way. So how? Well, this is that seemingly hard right turn that James talks about. Hey, consider it joy when you face trials. And if you need wisdom, ask for it. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So real quick, we're going to show this. And I just want to get a process right. Wisdom is the ability to see the world as God sees it. Wisdom is the ability to understand and interpret this moment in light of the big picture and the big movement of what God is not only doing right now, but what he has always been doing throughout history. Since the beginning, God has been on a march towards the end. Wisdom is the ability to recognize and acknowledge our place in that. So what we do, the way we begin, is that first we pray for wisdom. Because God says, listen, you want a prayer that will always be answered? This is it. Because he says he will give to all without finding fault. That means when you come and you say, Lord, I need wisdom in this situation, he's not like, well, no, what happened to the wisdom I gave you last month? Right? He's he's not saying, well, you're not very good. Well, I don't like you very much. He says, when you come to him and ask for wisdom, he always gives it. He always provides. So what's wisdom? Well, in Proverbs, there's a a good passage that tells you. Proverbs 9, verse 10 and 11. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. And this isn't like cowering in fear. This is like the fear of the Lord is the acknowledgement that he's God and he's in control. And I don't get to joust with him. I don't get to say, well, Jesus, have you considered my plans for my future, God? Have you considered my plans? for It acknowledges he is God and I am not. That is the beginning of wisdom. And the very act of prayer is an act of faith. Because what prayer does is say, I'm not going to go out and just try to get it. I'm going to stop here first. So that's how you pray for wisdom. You stop. And then you pray. And then you stop again. You pray for wisdom in your conversations. Someone's talking about something. Someone's coming up, right? Maybe, you, maybe the Lord has convicted you of gossip. Maybe you, in your heart you just know, man, I talk about people in a way that I shouldn't and, and, and I'm sorry and, and I don't want to do that anymore. And you get into a situation where somebody comes up and they start talking to you about someone else. Oh, did you see all so-and-so and his hair? Right, all that. In your heart, in your head, you're like, you're knowing. God, I believe that you want me to be a builder up of people with my words. 
give me wisdom in this situation for how to handle that. Now we're going to talk about the next part in just a second, but it begins with that prayer. It begins in that moment. God, what would you have me say when you get that phone call? God, what would you have me say? The second part is we pray expectantly. So we pray for wisdom. We pray expectantly. Look what he said here. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. And that's hard, right? You're like, well, no doubting, right? Let me let you off the hook here. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to have questions. What I would suggest to you is that you not worship those doubts, that you not make your doubts sacrosanct so that any time a doubt passes, I'd be like, well, must not be it because, well, I have a doubt, right? That's what he's saying. You must have faith and not doubt. You must say, even when those doubts come, go, yeah, but God is good and God has promised that he would serve me and he has promised that he would love me. He has made this promise. I can bet on his character. And even though I doubt, I'm gonna just keep walking, right? So this brings in the analogy. He must doubt and not have faith. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. What does a wave do? It comes and then it goes. It's Grover, right? Here, far. It goes. That's what the person, that's what doubt will do to us if we don't get it, right? It go, oh, I pray and I believe. And I just go, oh, God's going to give me faith in that conversation. And so a thing pops in my head. I'm about ready to say it. And then it's going to go, oh, no, I'm not sure that was God. I don't want to say it. He said he'd give you wisdom. You're in the conversation and a thought pops into your head. The faith part says, what if? What if that thing that just came into my head is, is the voice of God? Now, there are all kinds of ways to tell, right? Like, does it bear fruit? Does it, does it bring peace? Does it do all that? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the wisdom that bears fruit later. The idea is pray specifically. Pray for your specific need. What's that situation that you're in? What's that decision that you have to make? Pray, if you have to make a decision about a house, about a car, about your kids, about how to forgive someone, about whether to go to counseling or not, what you do is you pray and you go, God, I need wisdom about that thing. And then for the next 24 hours, walk around and act like you've made the decision. I have made that, I believe that God is telling me that I need to sell my house and buy a yurt, right? And so for 24 hours, you're walking through your day going, we're about to live in a yurt right? And notice, and now you're paying attention. Do I have peace in my heart? Do I feel, do I, do I feel joy over that decision? Or is all I can think about, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then for 24 hours, make the other decision. We're not selling our house. Now do you have peace? Now do you feel like joy and excitement over your future? That's a tell, but we have to pray specifically. If we just go, Lord, take care of everything today, then you get to the end of the day and you go, well, I'm not dead. God must have done his job. But that doesn't give you specific faith about specific areas in your life. So pray specifically. And third, pray for the strength to stand. For the person must not suppose, this doubted person, that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The idea of double-minded is God will, God won't. If you didn't have any faith at all, you wouldn't pray at all. That would be single-minded, right? That would have it be a pure mind. Or I have faith and I don't doubt and I just, God said, so I'm gonna keep forgiving, keep loving, keep serving, keep going, keep doing all those things because God says full faith or no faith. The problem is when we go, oh yeah, well, I don't know. 
because it's really hard and I don't want to make it worse. And if I do that thing and I feel like God's asking me to do, then it's going to be worse, right? And so if pain avoidance is our only metric in this life, we'll be in trouble. But Paul gives us some perspective on the pain. More pain, more perspective on trouble, more perspective on trials. Listen, are you ready? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light and momentary affliction. Now listen, I don't know what your affliction is. It may be heavy and burdensome. That's not an absolute statement. It's a relative statement. Listen, our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He didn't say your struggle isn't real. He said the thing that your struggle is doing in you cannot compare. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we pray, Lord, Let me see what this is bearing in me. Let me see what this is doing. And Lord, don't let me walk out from under this stone one second before you're ready. Not one second before I am mature and complete. And we have to commit to that. And listen, when you commit to turning the other cheek, when you commit to not ever responding to not being a retaliator, you can expect very short order is going to be the temptation to do just that. That's the moment. That's where the rubber meets the road, where you just go, I could. And listen, it's not this burden. It's not like God's saying, I'm going to strike you down. What he's saying is, there is something so good on the other side of that. I want you to choose to wait, to wait joyfully, to wait with hope, to wait with goodness in the middle of the worst thing that you can imagine so that everybody else can see it so that they can see what faith looks like. Because the promise is this. Listen, are you ready? The promise is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, all things, the diagnosis, the death, the divorce, the marriage, the life, whatever it is, God redeems it all. There is nothing that is left. When we quit on the plan that God has, we quit on the ability to see God do things that blow our minds. Listen, I don't know what your situation is today, but I know, I know that God is redeeming it. Do you know why I know? Because Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, that's not right. Hebrews chapter who? Yeah, chapter 12, verse 2. Listen. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. Listen, trials don't give us faith. They perfect it, right? They come to, and so what, here we find Jesus, the author, of, the one who puts faith in our heart, right? The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Friend, I would dare to say, as serious and real as your trouble and your hurt and your pain is, I would dare to say it pales in comparison to the cross. I would dare to say that the eternal creator of all things, giving his life to be murdered for us, surpasses it. And listen, again, please hear me. I'm not being cavalier. I'm not being flip with your situation. What I'm saying is that our Jesus understands He knows what it is to be in an absolutely, seemingly unwinnable situation. Jesus himself faced down Rome and religion. And what it says is, for the joy set before him. Do you know what the joy before him was? This. 
the presence of Father and the building of his church for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, that's what he has for you. That's what he has for his people. On the day that you come, and instead of throwing the rock, instead of squeezing out from under it and hiding in the shadows, on that day where God takes that rock from your shoulders and he lifts you up, I promise you there is a kingdom waiting for you where every sad thing will come untrue and where you will look back and go, that rock was nothing compared to the joy and the life that God has set before me. Listen, when, we, when the Lord calls us to holiness, when the Lord calls us to righteousness, when the Lord calls us to endurance, when the Lord calls us to purity, it is not to take something from us, it is to give something to us. And what he asks us and invites us is, are you ready? Trust me. Trust me. Not arbitrarily, not theoretically. Trust me in this. So Jesus, I pray that you would give us the grace to wait. And I pray for those who are struggling under a burden. And Lord, you went to the cross, but what's amazing is by faith, you don't look at our weaknesses and our failures and our trials and go, that's nothing. Just get over it. You enter into them with us. And Lord, you grieve with us when we grieve but you never want to stop locking eyes. You want us to see you in the midst of our pain and struggle. And I pray that today for all of those who are laboring and who are weary and who are heavy laden, I pray that you would whisper in their ears in a way that they can sense it that is real and relevant to them. I pray that, they would, that you would whisper to them that you see them and you know and that it will be worth it soon and forever. And I pray for those, Jesus, who maybe have felt shame or guilt for their struggles and their trials. I pray that they would be delivered. I pray that they would know that you are not angry, that you haven't abandoned them, but that your love will keep them. And I pray as your church that we wouldn't run from struggles, from trials, from temptation, from pain, from suffering, but that we would bear up in faith representatives of your kingdom, a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom that will last every, outlast every Caesar, every president, every government, every nationality that will outlast everything, built on the shoulders and the rule of you, Jesus. So Father God, we thank you that you are a father who loves us, who gives us good gifts. Spirit, thank you that you move in us to give us steadfastness. And Jesus, thank you that you gave us an example and we follow you today. Jesus, we ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. River City Church is all about experiencing and expressing God's love in our lives and community. And we hope that you've been able to experience that today. As grateful as I am that you've spent this time listening in this morning, this podcast is no substitute for full participation in a local church. I love it when River City people listen to other pastors, but it is those who show up week after week faithfully giving their support and time and resources that make all of this possible. If we can help you get connected to a local church, pray for you, or support you in any way, click the link in the description and let us know. If you'd like to financially support the ministry of River City, click the Give link on our website in the description. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to share this with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. May the Lord bless and keep you in all grace and peace.